Can you teach an old dog new tricks? Uh, one of the oldest phrases in American phrases, phraseology, uh, expression was made popular in 1546 that you can't teach an old dog new tricks. It was uh, stated or written by someone who uh, it seems was a, had a, was a shepherd and used dogs for sheep. And uh, the quote was, a dog must learn it when he is a whelp, meaning whatever the task was, or else it will be, or else it will not be for it is hard to make an old dog to stoop. I, I looked up, I tried to find out what the word stoop meant, and I couldn't find it, but something sheep dogs do. Um, so, you know, why is it, you know, why is that phrase, it's stuck, it's, why is it uh, so accepted? that you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Well, you know, you get bad habits. Uh, bad habits are learned over time. Uh, one of the great phrases that describe it are wheel tracks in the soul, just like uh, old wagon wheel tracks. Some of, the, some of the old wagon wheel tracks from people crossing on the Oregon Trail are still out there, um, and people go visit them to say, ooh, look at those wheel tracks. I have no desire to see that, but I'm sure it's pretty cool. Anyway, uh, you know, why is that can happen in your brain? You wire your brain in a certain way, and you've developed bad habits, um, addictions, and uh, sinful traits. And if they can't be changed, well, the question is, can they be changed? And can you reach a point where they can't be changed? And there's some who believe that, but you know, I think with all with God, nothing is impossible. It doesn't matter how old you are. If you cannot be changed, then there's no use to Christianity, as I said yesterday. So that's we're talking today about repentance. It is a main aspect of John the Baptist's ministry, and it is not a bad word. I think it's gotten a bad rap because of the idea of the preacher screaming from the pulpit, repent, or the crazy guy walking up and down the sidewalk yelling, repent. Uh, but it is, it, we'll see exactly what the word means today. So uh, go to your Bibles in Matthew 3 once again. And we'll begin with prayer and be grateful and thankful together for God's word. Always, it is extremely imperative that when you start learning God's word, that your mind's in the right place. And that means that you're not learning it for any other reason than to be instructed by God. Like these words are for you. Uh, they're, they're exactly for you, and God is speaking directly to you. And um, don't go over the Word of God to get it over with or to be a Bible scholar or for any other reason than to have God talk to you. And with that, you should be humble. So with those thoughts, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have so blessed us with the gift of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who in this season we are getting ready to celebrate his birth. The world over celebrates his birth. We pray, Father, that those of us who know him to be 
an everyday an event, an everyday blessing, would be a light shining in a world that generally only thinks about him once a year. Um, we ask, Father, that through your word and through these words we'll look at today, that you would uh, bless us magnificently through your spirit with understanding so that we may be blessed through wisdom and the great gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask in his name, amen. Uh, so, you need to change. <laughs> how many times have you heard that? You need to change. Uh, how many times have you told it to yourself? God, I need to change. And how easy or hard was it? It depends, I guess, on what it was. If it's like, you know, I need to take a new route to work, there's too much traffic here, that one's pretty easy, you know. Uh, but other habits, uh, we have many of them, and they're hard to break. Uh, so, you know, did you change when you, how many times have you told yourself to change? Did you change? Were you successful at it? Uh, change is a theme in the Bible. It's one of the main themes. Uh, you know, if, if someone were to ask you, what's the general theme of the whole Bible? And they're like, wow, you know, do you want, you want one? And, you know, you, you could say really it's the history or the story. Some would say the drama of the salvation of mankind. And then even in that is really not what it's about because, you know, we think, some people think, people think Jesus came to the earth to save me. And that's true. He did. But that was not his ultimate purpose. His ultimate purpose was to glorify his father. So really, you know, the theme of the Bible, if we could nail it down to one, and I, I shouldn't put myself out there like this because I'd, I'd change it, but um, is the glorification of God in the midst of humanity or from humanity. Uh, and, and because this whole story, this whole drama is about man, uh, we could see that clearly and that Christ becomes a man. The Son of God becomes a man. He doesn't become an angel. Uh, and so... You know, within that grand theme of glorifying God, the, the greatest decision that we make as people is to believe in Christ as our Savior, you know, to believe the gospel. And that's a great change in us. God is offering change to the human race. When we ate the fruit in the garden, we changed. And then God set about changing us again uh, rather than condemning us. He sought to change us. When Adam and the woman were naked, he changed that. He clothed them. When man was in ignorance, God changed that and gave him wisdom. When we were in need of a Savior, God changed that and brought his Savior into the world. So it would be, an, there's another great change, is the change from the Old Testament to the New. And at the front of that New Testament is a genealogy of the one who would bring the change. The genealogy of Jesus Christ is the opening of Matthew's Gospel, is the opening of the New Testament. And so we would not be surprised to see that change is a main theme in the Gospels itself because Christ comes onto the scene and he's doing something new. He's offering something new. He is someone new. He's born in a way that no one's ever been born. He is a person that has never been. Never. 
I mean, God's never been a man until him. And so, you know, yeah, change has a lot to do with things. And hence this word repent, that's exactly what it means. Something or someone that needs to change. And God reveals that to us. Through John the Baptist, God is revealing to Israel that they need to change. So he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The main theme of chapter 3 is another change. A changeover from, chapter 3 in Matthew I mean, is a changeover from the theme of water baptism, which is instituted with John. There's really nothing like it prior to John. And there's, uh, there's, you know, there's great mystery around that. Like People uh, really do con- try to consider if it's equivalent to the Old Testament washings, which it's really not. Oh, and similar. I mean, it's, it has some similarities, obviously. But the, gospel, uh, the, the baptism of John is for a cleansing that comes from a repentance of sin. And therefore, the baptism of John represents a forgiveness of sin. But a forgiveness of sin in a more Old Testament way. Because would water baptism forgive anybody of their sins eternally? The answer is no. It takes the blood of Christ to do that. And so John's water baptism is a forgiveness. But in the Old Testament, we read of forgiveness quite a bit, where God forgives Israel and asks them to return and tells them to repent, and he forgives them. And God's forgiveness in the Old Testament centers more around discipline, that he's about to discipline and he removes it, or he has disciplined and then he eases it back. And God speaks of that as, or, you know, he's going to kill you, And then he doesn't. We say, well, wait a minute. Does God repent? We're going to find out today that he does. So we're going to do some work around this theme. uh, Didn't finish that thought. That the water baptism of John is going to change over into the spirit baptism of Christ. And the spirit baptism of Christ is the eternal one. That's the permanent one. That's the one in which your sins are forgiven for all time. And you're entered into union with Christ and you're given a spiritual gift and you're born again and saved. It is. It happens to you in a moment of time when you have faith in him and it is forever. So John says, I baptize you with water. One greater than me is coming and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And uh, we see that Holy Spirit baptism happen to Christ when he comes out of him. We'll see all of this, why Christ is baptized in And what that is significant being is that calling from the heavens, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So, John, uh, sorry, Matthew 3, 1 speaks to John. Now, in those days, this phrase, in those days, it's a way of just progressing the narrative. We jump here in chapter 2 from... um, You know, I don't know how old Jesus was when he gets to Nazareth, but he's a young boy uh, all the way to now where he's around 30 years old-ish. So Matthew 3, 1, now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, We looked yesterday at wilderness, a really cool study of how wilderness is a place of trial, but it's also a place of new beginnings. 
Now, that carries over to this word repent, and that's what we're going to look at today. We slowed down a bit here with John because his words are significant, then things will speed up again, then they'll slow down again, and I don't know, I'm letting God the Holy Spirit lead me here in this gospel. I mean, we could be in this gospel for the rest of our lives for sure. So, but we slow down here with a few of these words because their, their application to us is important and their understanding is important. That we have to slow down with kingdom of heaven as well. We have to understand what that is. But <clears throat> the wilderness, uh, was a, we saw yesterday, is a prophetic theme. The prophets speak about it often. And it is a place where God try, tries his people, the Exodus generation. Jesus is tested in the wilderness. Elijah spends 40 days in the wilderness. Uh, and... Uh, the, the wilderness is a place of testing, but also a place of new beginning. And this made sense to us, I hope, yesterday, that when we're tested, God wants us to change some things. That God is putting pressure on us so that we'll learn something new and start something new. And it's the only way that we're going to start something new is when God puts the pressure and the pain in our lives. Uh, you know, what does that say of us as learners? Uh, none too good, right? So uh, the word repent is what we focus on today. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does he mean by repent? As this word is thrown around quite a bit. Um, so repent is here the verb. There's a verb and a noun used in the New Testament. The Greek here is metanoeo or metanaeo, and it means to change the mind. It's a compound word from uh, the first part is meta, and meta means to change, and noeo is the Greek word for mind. So it means literally to change your mind. However, in the New Testament, even in the Old Testament, it's not often, I don't know if it's hardly used at all, as just someone saying, you know, I don't think I'll have the chicken, I'll have the fish. You know, that, that's a repentance, by the way. Or I was going to go that way, but now I'm going to go this way. Or I was going to wear my red shirt, but I decided on the blue one. Uh, all of those are repentance. They're change of mind. But in the Bible, obviously, it's in reference to God. And unless God is repenting himself, and then it has a different emphasis. But we'll see them all together and get an understanding of this. That biblically, it is a complete change of attitude, either spiritual or moral towards God and this is what God wants uh, for is this only for unbelievers heck no it is applied to both believers and unbelievers and God and we'll see all three today <clears throat> this verb is used 34 times in the New Testament out of something like 170,000 different words that the New Testament uses this one is used 34 times. So, you know, it's fairly there. Uh, however, eight of these times are in Revelation 2 and 3 concerning the, the seven churches at the beginning of Revelation, where in each of these churches, God says, repent, I'm coming quickly, or repent, I'm going to remove your lampstand. So eight of them come from that part of Revelation, and almost all the rest of them come from Luke. Uh, for Luke, it seems to be a favorite word that he uses. And that's in his gospel and in the book of Acts. It's not used at all in the gospel of John, not once, neither the verb or the noun, which is, I find, significant in, in a certain way. 
And uh, it's only used, the verb here is only used once in the epistles. In the epistles, it's hardly used at all. But, you know, in the places that it is used, it is significant. The noun is used 22 times. Uh, We find that repenting or repentance, therefore, is applicable to the unbeliever, to the believer, and to God. And so when we, th- when we look at its definition, which is to change the mind towards God, we can see, of course, that would apply to the unbeliever, but it would also apply to the believer multiple times throughout his or her life. Like, how many things does God bring up that we see uh, that needs to change, or that way of thinking needs to change, or, you know, and that's what repentance is. It's a change. It's a growth. It could even be looked at as a deliverance. And when we look at the Old Testament word, we also see that it's a comfort. Uh, think about the fact that, let's, you know, I mean, we're so used to this that we need to change, we need to change, this needs to change. What if God didn't allow you to change? What if he said, you know, you are what you are, and you are that old dog, so there's no point to it. You're stuck. Imagine if we didn't have the option of change, but we do. And so change becomes a comfort. Change becomes a way of looking at the future. You know, a lot of people look at the future and know that they have to change or know that circumstances in their lives have to change. And they say, you know, they think of how daunting and impossible it is. And instead of looking at the future with hope and joy, they look at the future as, God, things are never going to change. In this book I'm listening to about, uh, it's, well, anyway, where there's a character, it's a, a real live person in this book who gets a law degree and then doesn't really know what to do and then joins a law firm. And in this law firm, and like many, I guess this is true of many law firms, if you get in there, they give you the, the bottom of the wrong job. And that bottom of the wrong job is that you go through box after box after box after box of papers. Uh, concerning certain cases, and you just basically um, document these papers. It's the most monotonous, like 80, 80 hours a week of just going through paper and documenting paper and on and on. <laughs> it's the most boring, mundane thing. But the promise, why would anybody do it? Because if you do it long enough, you'll become a partner. Right? If you do it hard enough and long enough, you move up the chain and then you become a partner. Well, this person who, by the way, is living now and is a billionaire, and he's not a practicing lawyer, um, you know, said, well, even if I do become successful as a lawyer, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? You know, I'm just going to litigate law, defend big companies who are trying to get around laws and make money, and, you know, like, does that sound like a life-fulfilling thing? What if you're pigeonholed like that? A lot of people are stuck. Can you change your career? Heck no, you're too old. Who would hire you? Old goat. (laughs) Who would hire you? So like, uh, you know, people say, and, and so there's this whole idea of, you know, at a certain age I retire and then I do what? I don't know. I sit in my chair and stare at the TV or go to the market, or I don't know, what do I do? And the future looks glum. But you see, God has given us the ability to change. 
And uh, to Israel, to Israel, um, and, and we have to be specific to Israel because this is unique. It's the only people in the history of the world that are in this situation. The situation would never come again. So does that mean their repentance is unique in some way? And I think that it is. I don't think it's completely unique, but I think in some ways it is. That these are the people of God, that they have the law of Moses, that they are God's elect. And that they all know that they have a Messiah coming, but they haven't had a prophet in Israel for 400 years. That's a long time. So are they expecting a Messiah? Have they been? Have their grandparents expected a Messiah? Really, you know, it's hard to imagine that they do. Although the history of the time seems to state that because the Romans had conquered that area, there was this expectation that had grown in amongst the people, which makes sense that God would, that would be a way of God uh, preparing them for the coming of the Messiah. Um, but it would have been slight. You know, people get used to who's ruling them. Anyway, to make a long story shorter here, uh, to have a crazy guy out in the wilderness you know, dressed in a camel skin, uh, saying, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Like, what do you do with that? But as John states, they have to repent. It's dire. And as he says in verse 10, you can look at it there. In verse 10, he says, the axe is already at the root of the tree. And that means that there's a destruction coming. You know, an axe at the tree. When God is using an axe, that tree's going to get chopped down. And that's an indication that the nation of Israel or those people there, they're not really a nation at the time. They're ruled by the Romans. But the city of Jerusalem and the people and the government that they have, that they're allowed to have, has a limited future. So if they don't repent, if that generation doesn't repent and they're not ready for their Savior, then some dire results are going to happen. The worst of all would be that they would be judged you can't say, in that generation, you can't say, well, I believed the Messiah, but I rejected Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. That is not an option. So, again, we have a lot of unique things at play here. <clears throat> now, repent is a change. For the unbeliever, the unbeliever has an idea of self-sufficiency. I'm being very broad here. There's a lot of ideas with unbeliever, but this... I don't need God or I don't need salvation or the unbeliever recognizes that they are in a pickle, so to speak, but there's no hope. Meaning that they understand that they're fallen. Maybe they don't understand the true significance of that, but they understand that things are not right. A lot of people have that and they know that in their soul. Things are not right. And so that's no hope. But the self-sufficient one must come to understand, and that's a change. And look, there's no person so talented or so humble that they become the one out of their own selves, that they become aware of this fact that they're condemned sinners. This is the work of Holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit in the world. We don't see it, we don't feel it, and that's why... You know, we just know it by faith. We, also, we know by faith that man has fallen. He is completely and 100% depraved. He cannot do anything for his salvation. And so self-sufficiency must be changed to, I'm a condemned sinner. Why would you believe in a Savior if you thought you were sufficient? And then no hope has to change the hope. 
And hope is in Christ. So the gospel itself is the story of this one, of the Lord Christ. When you're presenting the gospel to someone, it, yes, you're, you're presenting faith in Christ for salvation, but you can also speak to them of who Christ is, what he's done, not on the cross, but also as the fulfiller of all prophecy. Anything you share about Christ is technically a part of the good news of the gospel. I mean, who knows what that unbeliever needs to hear to get them to, maybe to get the process going of them thinking about, you know, who is this one, Christ? You know, he's the Son of God, become a man. You know, that would be impossible for them to understand. But remember, you have God the Holy Spirit with you, witnessing of that truth. So, but, you know, all of those things that I speak of there, uh, journey into the, you know, the Calvinist is going to raise, after what I just said, there's going to be a Calvinist raising one hand, an Arminianist raising another, a Lutheran raising a hand, uh, a free grace guy raising a hand, a uh, Baptist, you know, they all have their ideas of what it takes for someone to get saved. And the Bible doesn't go into it. The Bible tells us it's faith. But the Bible also tells us, if you look at all the times that Paul witnesses in the book of Acts, say, he doesn't just stand up in the synagogue and say, Christ is the Messiah, believe in him, see you later. Even when he was speaking to Gentiles in Athens, he spoke to their hearts and he spoke about who the Christ was. In Athens, he spoke about resurrection, which actually in almost every gospel message in Acts, resurrection is brought up. And that's something that we need to remember as witnesses. And that's something to tell about Christ. It's not up to you to convince them either. You know, it's the Holy Spirit's job. So this change, this is, sometimes it's called common grace. It's a good word, good phrase for it. The common grace ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, is getting the world who is self-sufficient and without hope to come to understand that they're condemned sinners in need of a Savior and that there is only one Savior. As far as John's message, John the Baptist, the need for change in Israel is the need, their need in Israel to return to their true allegiance to God. They're God's people. This is not true of pagans. It's not true of others. It's only true of Israel, that they are God's elected people. The unbelievers in Israel are God's elected. We don't mean elect in the way we mean it in the church, but it is an election. God chose them. So repentance for them is to return to that allegiance. If they do not... When this Jesus of Nazareth comes and presents himself as the Messiah, they're going to say no, and the gospel bears this out. So we'll see what they have what they have to do. And I'll, if I hurry up here, here we go. Repentance, therefore, is a universal need. It's not just for Israel at this time. It's that's true. We see it throughout the Scripture. It has a need before salvation and after salvation, but. You know, things are different. You know, when where is an unbelieving pagan headed that they need to turn from? Where is a unbelieving Jew in the first century before the coming of Christ in the days of John the Baptist? Where are they headed? In other words, I keep I say headed because repentance means to turn. So 
you know, where are you headed? An unbelieving Jew is just kind of put God, he knows that there's a Jehovah Elohim, obviously. That's his whole life is built around it. But he has put him far away, uh, not really adhering or allegiant to his God or her God. The need to change uh, for everyone when they change is headed in the same direction. The change too is always the same, which is Christ. But the path that people are taking is different. And so where they're going to change from, if it's a pagan, it's a Jew, it's a, uh, a rich person, a poor person, uh, someone homeless on the street and someone affluent and has a whole life of you know, things at their fingertips and they're blessed and they're prosperous, what you say to each of those people what they're repenting from is going to be different. And that's why when we present the gospel, it's not always exactly the same. <clears throat> when Paul spoke to the pagans in Athens, he didn't say the same thing as he did to the synagogues and the other places that he went to. When speaking to Jews and Gentiles or pagans and Jews, he spoke differently. And that's because, again, they're headed, both of them are headed in the wrong path. But those paths are different. So sin in to the Jews was as a violation of the laws of failure to love the Lord and a failure to keep his commandments. Are pagans under the law? They are not. So when Paul is in Athens, first, you know, that's the real, um, in Acts chapter 17, where we see Paul really speaking to pagans. He doesn't bring up the Mosaic law because they don't know anything about it. The Jews who were legalistic and thought they could be saved through the law, they had to be turned from that. The pagans who were worshiping you know, idols and stuff had to be changed from that. And so the message again changes. But for now, we focus on uh, John. The Hebrew word used, that is repent, is nacham, N-A-C-H-A-M. That's used somewhere around 70, close to 80 times in the Old Testament, so it's fairly frequent. Um, you may notice that it means repent, but it also means to comfort. And I found that surprising, that you know, uh, usually when a, a word has two meanings, and it's used, both, it's used in the Bible under both contexts, when a word is used and has two meanings, that those meanings are usually related you know, like synonymous. However, in this case, it doesn't seem to on the surface. But because of that, when we look into them, we actually find that they do uh, or are related. And that relationship is uh, something that gives us some learning. How is repentance related to comfort? Well, comfort is an attempt to change and that's how it's related. If I'm uncomfortable and I become comfortable, that's a change. But when it comes to someone comforting me, you know, if someone's comforting, if I'm agitated, when someone's comforting me, they're trying to enact a change. And so that's how they're related. If, we have a, if you're in a relationship and someone is trying to comfort you, say a broken relationship or something you have done to hurt someone or someone has hurted you, hurt you, and you're trying to um, reconcile, uh, that's a change. And so this word in Hebrew actually came to mean both. 
Uh, when calamity comes upon God's people for their sins, God allows them to repent. And when God allows them to repent, as we'll see here in a second, you know that gives them comfort. God says to them, I could crush you, but I'm going to allow you to change. And by allowing you to change, you should find comfort in that. You know, you've done wrong things. You deserve death. But God says, I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to allow you to change. He does it over and over. And therefore, my ability to change, my ability to repent, actually is a source of comfort. John's message of repentance is, I should have made that bigger, but John's message of repentance is the same as many of the Old Testament prophets. Uh, Go to Hosea. Let's look at a few of them. We're going to stay here in the minor prophets, so I'll give you a little bit to find Hosea, and uh, we're going to leave there and turn right back there. But look at Hosea. It's the first of the twelve. So if you're in the big prophets like Isaiah... Jeremiah, Ezekiel, keep going. You'll be at Hosea real quick. Hosea 12.6. Hosea 12.6. Therefore, return to your God, observe kindness and justice, and wait for your God continually. Right now, Hosea is witnessing our prophesying to Israel when they are in deep trouble. And they're in deep trouble because of their idol worship and the Assyrians are coming. We've seen this over and over. We've seen it in Isaiah because Hosea and Isaiah are prophesying at the same time. The Assyrians are coming. And notice what God says through Hosea, return to your God. The door is still open that you can return. Now hold your place there and go to Luke 3. We're going to go right back to Hosea. But let's read something in Luke 3, which is John, uh, Luke's account of John the Baptist. And John's message, when the people say, all right, what should we do? John's message to the people includes this exhortation to change there. And that, I'm being specific here, to change their greed. And that's what he's going to tell them. Change your greed. Now, these, what, notice what John says here. It's, it's very particular, which you know, we should ask ourselves why it is particular, and we will. Luke 3.10 says, And the crowds were questioning him, questioning John, saying, Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. Now notice, this is not even sacrificial giving. You have two tunics, and this guy next to you has zero, and he's cold. You don't need two tunics. You're basically giving him your leftovers. It's the same with the food. He said, do likewise. I have plenty of food. I have extra, and here's a guy starving, and I'm just going to give him my extra. Right, so that's, that's just common decency. It's not even sacrifice. So keep that in mind. And then in verse 12, the next guy, or his next reference, and some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Right? That's not sacrificial giving. 
That's just common decency. Do your job and stop cheating. Some soldiers, verse 14, were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. Again, not sacrificial giving. Just take your paycheck, and even though you have the power of the soldier, do not exact from people by force. In other words, don't steal. What is in common with all three of these is greed. It is absolutely greed that is in common with all three. So, uh, in each case, say, and, and so, you know, is this the only thing that John said? We don't know. Because this is about, as far as people asking him, what should we do? This is the only place that we find it, is in Luke 3. So, as um, the Holy Spirit is the inspirer, or the one who has inspired the scripture, it is God who wants us to see this, this repeating of greed. And so in Israel, the Messiah is coming, the kingdom of God is at hand, change your greed. And so we have to ask ourselves, how are they related? How are they related to one another? Well, this is my stab at it. Greed means pride, and it means fear. Why are we greedy? Well, we're fear, we're, we fear we're not going to have enough. We fear we're not going to have a good time uh, if we have two tunics. You know, in other words, you have a closet full of winter coats, and you only wear one. And you won't even give one away to the guy freezing out your doorstep, you know. It's a, why would you do that? Well, you know, someday I might need that coat. It's pride in myself. I want stuff. That's what pride is, is I take it for me. And fear. And repentance, however, is comfort. And comfort is not just to the one that you gave to. It is also to yourself. Everybody who learns to be Gracious in giving discovers this. That giving to others is far better than receiving. You know, that's funny. I think I've heard that somewhere before. Somebody has said that. And I think it was God. <laughs> it was Jesus said it. It is better to give than it is to receive. And why in Israel? Well, greed is pride, greed is self, greed is fear. And we see this played out in the Gospels. Does the leadership accept Jesus of Nazareth? No, he's a nobody from Galilee. No prophets come from Nazareth. We don't, we don't accept this man. We're the important people. Right? It's their pride. And Jesus said it to them. You can't even believe in me because you... Seek glory from one another. That's in John chapter 4. It's 4 or 5. So, notice. So, hold on to this greed aspect from Luke. Go back to Hosea. We'll read verse 6 again. 12.6. Hosea 12.6. Where God tells him to return. And, you know, their problem is idol worship. But notice how God manifests it here. Verse 6, therefore, return to your God, observe kindness and justice, and wait for your God continually. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. See, so the, the merchant has, a, he's cheating. He has a balance that isn't right. 
And so he's cheating. A merchant in whose hands are false balances he loves to oppress. And Ephraim said, it's a, Ephraim is the strongest tribe in the north, so it's a, a blanket term for Israel. Ephraim said, surely I have become rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors they will find in me no iniquity which would be sin. And Ephraim, therefore, in chapter 8, God says to Ephraim, you say you have no sin because you're wealthy. Imagine that. I'm so stinking rich. I don't have any sin. It's those poor jerks that are on the street. They're the sinners, not me. Look at my house. Look at my stuff. Look at my clothes. Look at my food. Look at my car. Cars. I'm not a sinner. We see this exactly played out in the Gospels. So John says repent. To Why? Well, we see this from the Hebrew word. Where did where'd you go? Nakam. Nakam means not only to repent, the same word is translated comfort. And it means that in context. God is telling us, and this is application to us, God is telling us to change. And the more we change into conformity with him, everything we repent of, meaning we change it, change our thinking towards more towards him, it gives us more and more peace. It gives us more and more comfort. And that's exactly what God wants for us. More peace, more comfort. So Israel needs to change if they're going to accept Jesus of Nazareth. We've kind of seen this a bit, why Jesus comes from Nazareth. It's done on purpose. He is not, because God does not care about earthly status and riches. Why, why would he? Why would he play towards that? In other words, I'm going to impress the human race by coming in the manner of a conquering hero. He's not going to do that. He comes humble because that's what God is. God's going to present himself. And on fallen earth where we have taken the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil and caused in ourselves a nature of pride as we have inherited from Adam. God is not going to play towards that pride. God is going to kill that pride. And pride gets in the way. So, you know, I'm not going to go into the whole Calvinism, Arminianism, Lutheranism, you know, election, all that. I'm not going to go into it because I don't really care about it. I mean, I shouldn't say I don't care about it. I do. But really, when it comes to this, it's not having to do with anything that that we could really discern in that manner. The manner of thinking here is the fact that what is true, as we see in the Scripture, and that's all we have to stick with. We'll see yeah, here coming up real quick. There's plenty of things in the Scripture that are baffling to us because God is somewhat baffling to us, as it should be. But John is sent ahead of the Lord Jesus Christ to tell Israel to repent, to change their allegiance from themselves to their Lord where it should have always been as the chosen people of God. Because if they don't, when the king comes, and he's coming real soon, as he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's coming real soon, that they're going to reject him if their hearts are not right. And there's a lot of people who take that to say, well, well, you see, you know, people can't just be elected. They have to 
get their hearts right, and then they can be saved, and vice versa, and they argue about that. Uh, you know, I don't care for it at all. Now, to help, so we've got the unbeliever repentance, the believer repentance. We've talked a little bit about both. And then we have God repentance. And this helps us to understand this word. So, in fact, repentance is applied to God. And this helps us to see what it is. That it is definitely a change of mind. God is not repenting of sin, obviously, but God is changing his mind. And we find this odd. Uh, let's see. Let's document it. Well, first, before I leave this, you probably know that uh, God does say, I'm not like man that I repent. That's in 1 Samuel chapter 15. I don't repent. But right before that, he says, I repent. Just like two sentences before he says, I'm not a God who repents. He says, I repent that I have made Saul king of Israel. Now, either Samuel is probably writing that down as, you know, lost his memory. Or that there's something afoot here that we don't, you know, on the surface isn't exactly what we expect it to be. That's the second one. Something here about God that that rolls into the realms of mystery, which is great. But there's something here that we can truly understand. When God changes his mind, it's always perfect. And he's not changing his mind from something less perfect to more perfect, as we'll see. God told Moses to stand aside on the mountain. He said Israel had made the golden calf. God said, you know what, Moses, stand aside. I'm going to destroy them, and I'll make a nation out of you. He could still keep his covenant if he keep, makes a nation out of Moses. So he said, I'm going to mow them all down. And Moses prays and says, don't do that. Please. You always say please to God when you tell him not to do something. And then Exodus 32.8, so the Lord changed his mind. This is this word, nacham. The Lord changed his mind about the harm that he said he would do to his people. Huh. What the heck is he doing here? This is the immutable God who can't change his mind. Correct. Put your pen in that. Next. Jeremiah 18.8. God says, look, if you guys repent of your idol-worshipping stupidity, then I won't turn my evil on you. And the same word is used. Repent. Jeremiah 18.8, If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent. That's the same word. Relent there is naham. I will relent concerning the calamity I have planned to bring on it. So, you know, God's like, well, I don't know what they're going to do, so maybe I'm going to bring the evil, maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm going to bring the discipline, maybe I'm not. Maybe the Babylonians are coming, maybe they're not. But God leaves the door open for him. And he says, I'll repent. Go to Joel. If you're in Hosea, go one book. Find it quick. Joel's real short. Go to Joel chapter 2. Joel is a dire warning. This is where we find uh, in multiple places the uh, teaching on the day of the Lord and how awful it's going to be. Joel 2.13, and rend your heart and not your garments. In other words, don't fake your repentance. 
rend your heart. It means to tear it. Be brokenhearted. Rend your heart, not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. That's the word for repent, relent. Uh, it's not calm again. If you change, I'll change. I'll change. Now, is God changing his character, his nature? No, obviously. God is changing his plans. If you repent, I'll change my plans. You see that? So, in this, in fact, because there's other instances of this where in Genesis 6, where he says, I repent that I made man, and then he brings the flood. You know, this God changes his decisions. And this tells us that if you have wisdom, that you know how to do the right thing in the right situation. We see that when situations change, God will change accordingly. So God, in fact, isn't changing. When I, I take this, when God says, I don't repent like man, or I'm not a man that, God, that I repent, it seems to me what he's saying there is, I'm not a repenter like man is. Obviously, we've seen it here. He does repent, but he doesn't do it like us. He does it perfectly, always carrying out his perfect righteousness. When things change, he changes. Now, how does that apply? Well, first off, this helps us understand the word repent beautifully. Repentance means to change. That's it. God is not turning to him. Now, repentance for us is not going to be the same as God because so often for us, our repentance is not a change from one good thing to another good thing. Because God's repentance always is. From one good thing to another good thing, just as good. And for us, it's so often from a bad thing to a good thing. But oftentimes, you know, I, I think that we do have that opportunity to change from a good thing to a good thing. Look at Jonah, Jonah 3. So go forward again, just a couple of books. We gotta get, we're going to have, uh, someday we'll have a class on the minor prophets and we'll do them, well, a few classes. We'll learn them all. They're pretty short, <coughs> meaning they're books, not, not the prophets themselves. I don't know how tall they were. Look at Jonah 3.10. When God, speaking of the Assyrians now in Nineveh, when God saw their deeds that they had turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. That God relented again. Same word, nacham, it means to repent. So the, and note, I love the next line. How does Jonah respond to that? Chapter 4, verse 1. Jonah is P.O.'d. He hates the Ninevites. He hates the Assyrians. And he cannot believe. If, if you, it's a wonderful read, the book of Jonah. It's real short. But if you, if you read the book of Jonah, spend a, an, a couple minutes thinking about Jonah's gospel message to the city. It's like five words long. And it, the reason why he does it, he gives the bare bonus minimalist gospel he could because he doesn't want them to repent. And they repent anyway. And what does God do to keep on our subject here? God relents. So what does this show us? When we look at repent, repent means to change your mind. And in God's case, 
it's the case of, here's a situation where I'm going to do something. Because I'm God, it's righteous and good. But then the situation changes. For us, it's another situation. And I'm going to do something just as good, but it's not the same. Right Now, we all know this inherent. We know this. But I, I think it, it's good to see that it is the word repent. It's my ability and your ability to, in different situations, know what to do. And what do you need to do that? Because those situations generally involve people. And the first thing you need is love. You need to be able to love others with God's love. Or you're not going to care about the people around you. See, it's appropriate to say and do things in front of some people and completely inappropriate to do those exact same things in front of others. And that is called the law of love. Paul said, if, if meat causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again. God has this. This is what I'm calling it divine repentance. You change your actions based on your environment and you still act completely righteously. If they change, I change. What if you, you, know, you have an enemy who loathes you and hates you and they've done all kinds of evil against you? They've hurt you. And then they change. And they come to you and they say, could you forgive me? Now, now we know we're Scripture bound to forgive them. But, I mean, we could go like, yeah, I forgive you. Like, and under our breaths, get the heck out of my face before I choke you. If something changes, someone changes, will you change? In a righteous way, will you speak differently, act differently? Will your heart change? Because as God said in, in, uh, in Joel, he said, don't rend your garments. Anybody can do that. Rend your heart. Be brokenhearted over what you've done. But for God, this divine repentance, which each of us can have and apply, is to be able to do the right thing in the right situation. Then... The unbeliever repentance, which you already saw. The unbeliever has no hope and he is self-sufficient. And God, the Holy Spirit, changes that or tries to. Witnesses to that person in common grace that they are condemned sinners and that there is hope in one person only in Christ. Our gospel surrounds these two things right here. It is not our job to convince them to change. If they don't change, they're rejecting God, the Holy Spirit. Then, finally, there is the believer's repentance. Re believer repentance is usually the result of pain. Second Corinthians 7.9, Paul says, I caused you sorrow by my first letter, and I was, I, he said, I felt terrible. It hurt him that he caused sorrow to them, but then he said, I rejoice." Because that sorrow caused you to repent. And he called it a godly repentance because it's a repentance without regret. We could spend time on that. It would be a wonderful study. It always, every study is a wonderful study. But it's really not our subject in Matthew. So I stayed off it because it would get us off on a tangent. Um, <clears throat> but to know that God repents, the unbeliever repents, the believer repents multiple times. Pain, as we saw last, last time, pain means something's wrong. 
if it's pain, emotional pain, it's physical pain, something wrong with your body. Physical pain could mean something wrong with your heart too. But pain means that something's wrong and God wants us to make it right. But not on our own, with his power, with his wisdom. So after this, hopefully you have a better idea of what repentance is. That was my, my goal for today, is to give you a better idea of what repentance is. It's definitely a wonderful word. word, word. It's, not a, it's not a bad word. It's something that we should have with us. If you want to call it just change or you want to call it new beginning, I like new beginning. That's awesome. Um, the fact is that you can change. Is there a deep-seated habit? An addiction, that's generally what that is. Addictions have all kinds of, of uh, objects. Um, is it a vice that you want to change? Is it um, you know, some, a pattern of sin that you want to change? Can it change? God says, absolutely, that's what I'm in the business of doing. I change people. But as we saw in the places where Israel had to repent, John is saying it to the people, they have to make that decision. And, you know, as we progress in this study of John, we'll see, and I think we all know, I don't think I have to teach it to you, you know, why is it hard to repent? Why doesn't anybody want to do it? But I'll, I'll teach it anyway. Those, those subjects are great fun for me. <laughs> they apply to us all, and we're all big babies who want our own way. We're all brats. Uh, we're all uh, babies in adult suits, you know, wanting things our own way. And God is in the business of changing that. If we didn't change, we couldn't mature. If we didn't change, we couldn't get wise. And God here, this part of remember the word means comfort as well. The comfort is God has given you permission to change and he's behind you all the way. Not just behind you, but in you to give you the power to do it. So can I change? God says, let's get going. Let's get it done. He's in the business of changing. So can an old dog learn new tricks? I hope so. Because I'm an old dog. You're never too old to change. In fact, we have to change our whole lives. And this makes life exciting. We're never, ever at a place where there ain't more to learn. There ain't more to do. There ain't a, and to do it better. All of us. Doesn't matter how old you are. Praise God. Let's, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the ability to change. Thank you that change actually comes to us when we're a bit older and a bit wiser. And thank you for your patience with us that, you know, we all deserve death, that you haven't brought that. You brought the death upon your son as our substitute. And so, therefore, we are alive in him. For those of us who are believers, let us continue to seek the places that we need to change. We know that you'll show them to us. May we be humble to be able to see them and accept them. And also, may we be lights to the world, to the unbeliever, knowing that they need to change, but knowing, Father, that your spirit is the one who changes them. But let us be lights that they can look to to see your gospel. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.